Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your usual host, but in this episode of our Study Smarter series, we have Stuart Bryant, our producer, who is actively studying for step one, and Elizabeth Beeman, my wife and psychiatry resident at the University of Cincinnati, doing a little bit of a discussion on some high-yield neurology questions. With it being crunch time for you guys studying for step one, don't forget about our all-audio QBank with content from Lecturio and Osmosis, questions optimized for audio learning. You can get a one-month subscription for only 15 bucks. Plus, you incoming second years, first years, those who order a six-month or longer subscription before August 15th. We will be doubling the amount of time you have access for the same price as a regular subscription. Plus, we added some unreleased or yet-to-be-released content featuring our Kaplan Test Prep Minutes, Med School Coach Minutes, and StatMed Learning Lessons, which are all about the questions you have related to exam strategy, approaching multiple-choice questions, and the sorts of things for which you probably listen to the Inside the Boards podcast. Check it out by going to the show notes and clicking the link or navigating to our Podbean page at insidetheboards.podbean.com. We have a lot planned for Inside the Boards this academic year, including further development of our All Audio QBank and some exciting collaborations, partnerships, and initiatives, including a top-secret project we are working on with others to help fight medical student burnout. You can go to our website, insidetheboards.com, Sign up for our email list to stay informed and to get involved. Please continue to listen to share this with your friends. Inside the Boards is ultimately about improving the lives of medical students, helping you to save time, and ensuring that you continue to have some sense of that idealism that brings us all to a career in medicine. And before we get into our neuro discussion, here is one of those Kaplan Test Prep Minutes. As always, I really do thank you for listening. Happy studying. Back with another Kaplan Test Prep Minute with Chris Semino, Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for Kaplan Medical. Head over to captest.com and use the offer code ITB15 for 15% off any Kaplan Medical product. And importantly, for AMA members, you can combine this with your AMA membership discount for a total of 40% off. Dr. Semino, can you talk about the law of diminishing returns as it relates to preparing for an exam? Sure. I can't tell you how many times at the end of the second year, students would come into the dean of students' office and say, can I start my clerkships a little later so I can have just a little more time to study before I take my step exam? There's always that feeling like a little more time and you could read that one fact that's going to help you answer that one question that you know, otherwise you would have gotten wrong. But the reality is the more time you spend, as you spend time studying, you're losing information that you studied six months ago or a year ago because you're not using it as actively. And so you are gaining ground as you study up until a point. At some point, you start to get what I call study fatigue. 
it starts to wear on you that you're spending, you know, 12 hours a day in the library, maybe getting uh, cup noodles for lunch and that's it. Uh, not talking to your friends or family that will wear you down and it can reduce your efficiency. So at some point, your efficiency in gaining new knowledge or reinforcing your existing knowledge is going to drop below the level of the the pace at which you're losing knowledge. And so at that point, you're going to plateau or even lose ground in terms of what your eventual score will be. All right. Thank you. So welcome back to the Inside the Boards podcast. I'm Stuart Bryant, and I'm here with the impeccable Elizabeth Beeman, and we are going to be running through some neurology questions today. Hello. It's really late. It is. So we might stumble over a couple <laughs> things. And if you do, if we do, well, sorry about that, uh, but we'll try our best. Okay, I'll get us started okay. here. A 25-year-old man comes to the emergency department because of a seizure. His coworker brought him in after witnessing the episode. She says 30 minutes ago, he began generalized convulsions and has not gained consciousness since. She is unable to provide the patient's past medical history and physical examination is limited secondary to the patient's condition. After appropriate assessment of the airway, breathing, and circulation, which of the following is the most appropriate treatment in this patient? Is it A, levetiracetam? B, lorazepam, C, phenobarbital, or D, phenytoin? So what's the answer? Well, I would go with B, lorazepam. And I would pick lorazepam because that this patient's been in continuous convulsions for, it sounds like, 30 minutes and is meeting the definition of status epilepticus. So we go with a benzodiazepine as our first-line treatment. The only benzodiazepine that's a choice is lorazepam. I know levetiracetam, phenobarbital, and phenytoin are also second- and third-line treatments, with phenobarbital being like a third-line treatment. But phenytoin and levetiracetam um, could also be used to uh, stop seizures. But we have to be really careful when using those. Like if we had already used a benzodiazepine as together, they can cause respiratory suppression. So on the exam, I think that might be something to be thinking about. But as far as answering this question, definitely benzodiazepines first for treating status epilepticus. So would you say that's the main objective of this question? I think so. I think so, yeah. Okay, so I, I've kind of picked this up just looking at questions recently. Uh -huh. And this may not be true, so go ahead and correct me. But in general, when they're talking about giving a patient something, is phenobarbital ever really the answer? So we don't really use barbiturates much anymore for anything. You're right. Um, it seems like it would be like a last resort in most cases. We don't use them because they have similar effects to benzodiazepines, but they're kind of more dangerous for all the reasons benzos are dangerous. So cause more respiratory suppression. They're highly addictive. They have a very serious withdrawal syndrome. And uh, really anything that we would have used barbiturates for, we can use benzos for more safely. So really, they, they aren't seen a lot anymore. Um, there is thiopental, which psychiatrists will sometimes rarely use, and that's kind of 
colloquially known as the truth serum, but um, that's the only one that like is used very rarely. And I, I kind of doubt that you would see that on the examination. So generally I would steer away yeah. from anything that that's a barbiturate. And I know thiopental was like a very popular anesthesia mm. drug until, um, until it was uh, taken off the, or we lost our supply of it in the U S I oh. believe. All right. So that clears up that question. Do we want to move on? Sure. So this question is, a 75-year-old woman comes to the emergency department because of weakness and hyperreflexia in her right arm and leg for the past hour. Neurological examination shows loss of right-sided vibratory sensation and proprioception and deviation of the tongue towards the left. Which of the following vessels is most likely involved in this patient's condition? A, the left posterior inferior cerebellar artery. B, the right anterior cerebral artery. C, the right middle cerebral artery. Or D, the anterior spinal artery. All right. So this is kind of a tough Mm -hmm. question for me. Um, But I really kind of hinge on the deviation of the Mm -hmm. tongue to the left Mm -hmm. and right-sided... loss of vibratory senses, right-sided weakness. Mm -hmm. So because of the opposite going tongue movement, I'm going to go with the anterior spinal artery. That is correct. Can you tell us why you picked that? Yeah. So to me, I feel like this is one of the harder Mm -hmm. kind of localizations of, um, you know, neurology, but uh, this is medial medullary syndrome. And, um, you know, what you'll find with that is you've got this contralateral, um, hemiparesis or weakness on that, on the opposite side. Um, Mm -hmm. on, in this case, the patient had right-sided, um, hemiparesis. Mm -hmm. And then you've got also contralateral loss of sensation on the right in this case. And then you'll have ipsilateral tongue deviation. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the tongue is going to the left. And that's supposedly because it's hitting the the left hypoglossal nucleus, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, in that case, that is localized kind of in the 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 nucleus for the hypoglossal nerve is in the medulla, right? So I am going with the anterior spinal artery because that's the only one of these that goes near the medulla, uh, right, right? Exactly. And does nothing to the face, right? Face is totally fine. Yeah, Yeah, I think this is a tough question, but I think identifying like you did that it was medial medullary syndrome really only leaves you with something that caused an infarct to the spinal artery. It's going to affect the tongue and the body on the opposite side. Basically, half the body is numb and uh, paralyzed and the other side is the direction to which the tongue deviates. So I think Mm -hmm. that was a good answer. Mm. I mean, that's the best I know of it so far. (laughs) The other, you know, the reason this is a harder question Mm -hmm. for me is because the first answer choice was the left posterior inferior cerebellar artery. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's also kind of lateral Mm -hmm. medulla. And that's going to cause, uh, you know, in this case, the answer was medial medullary syndrome, and that one would have caused lateral medullary syndrome. Right. And that's more 
that's going to have facial exactly, features. Yeah. Uh, and particularly what I pin on is the, you know, facial features, but Horner syndrome seems to be a, a particular one that sticks out to me. Definitely. More. And so Horner syndrome is that classic triad of meiosis anhydrosis and ptosis. <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful for memorization purposes, but you have a small little constricted pupil, your eyelid droops, and um, you can't sweat on one half of your face. And it's very specific for lateral medullary syndrome. So, But I think that you're also right to say from a test-taking strategy, it, it involves the face. Whereas, you know, we're always trying to look for what are the big differences that would really be dead giveaways, anterior spinal artery isn't going to affect facial um, movement and lateral medullary syndrome, which involves the left posterior inferior cerebellar artery would involve the face. So I think that like, that's what's, that's what makes you able to get the correct answer. Um, Yeah, exactly. And yeah, for me, like I'm over here struggling to remember um, Horner syndrome, but you know, I know that it's involving right. the face. I know that you have decreased sweating. Right. Hopefully I'll have that down by the time I take the boards. And, I, you know, on a test I can pick it out, but, you know, pulling it all out of thin air is another thing. Right. Okay, so a 25-year-old man comes to the emergency department because of worsening visual hallucinations for the past week. He says that he has schizophrenia and has been non-compliant with his medications. In the emergency department, he is administered a 5-milligram injection of haloperidol. Six hours later, he has diffuse muscular rigidity and diaphoresis. His temperature is 103 degrees Fahrenheit, a pulse of 89, and a respiratory rate of 18, and a blood pressure of 131 over 91. Over the next 24 hours, the patient becomes increasingly obtunded. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Serotonin syndrome. B. Malignant hyperthermia. C. Tardive dyskinesia. Or D. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So what's the answer? So I would definitely go with D. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Um, I think the almost dead giveaway in this, although I, I don't know if you could always rely on this, but... The giveaway is that they're telling you that he's being treated with haloperidol, right? He, not only that he has yeah. schizophrenia, which I think is maybe more common in NBME style questions, just to say that he has this diagnosis and kind of you have to guess that he might be treated with one of the agents that, kind right. of, you know what I mean? That would be used to treat it. But he's they're actually telling us he's being treated with a antipsychotic. And if... If I wanted to make this a good question, I probably would just say he, he received a five milligram injection of a drug. Yeah. Or and leave it right. at that. Or or I've seen him written that they just the patient comes in obtended and can't tell you a medical history and you don't know what they're on, but uh, someone says yeah. or they say that they have a history of schizophrenia diagnosis or something. So they could have taken their home medications or something. But in that way you don't know like for sure, did he ha- overdose on a bunch of SSRIs and it's serotonin syndrome or you can't just rule it out based on the drug that the NBME is not that nice. So they're not going to let us do that. Mm-hmm. But for that, for that question, we could the similarity. And, and so the big three to differentiate bef- uh, between for the boards are serotonin syndrome, malignant hyperthermia and 
neuroleptic malignant syndrome and to a certain degree also lithium toxicity um, sometimes comes into play. But to tell the difference between serotonin syndrome, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and malignant hyperthermia, they can look clinically the same. Obviously, if they're both listed as answer choices, it has to be there has to be some <laughs> clear indicator for which is correct. So hyperthermia is going to be seen with all of them. So we can't use that high temperature. So just you can like forget about that. Basically, everybody's going to be hot and have a fever. So for serotonin syndrome, you think of more increasing activity of the bowel. So hyperactive bowel sounds, diarrhea, that would be on top of, uh, that would be on top of the high temperature. And then you'd also have more like hyperreflexia for neuroleptic malignant syndrome. They look like a patient who suddenly has very severe Parkinsonism um, so think about all of the signs that you would look for, the, the um, kind of tremor, the masked faces, the cogwheel rigidity, the, the gait of Parkinsonism. And you see that in combination with that high temperature and it's kind of a rapid onset. Uh, and this only takes a couple days, by the way, neuroleptic malignant syndrome to develop. And then they're, they're very confused just as this patient is. And that's when we think of neuroleptic malignant syndrome. And then malignant hyperthermia again, has the high temperature, but also has muscle rigidity. They also get tachycardia. This one stands out because really the only way that you're going to get malignant hyperthermia on a board's thing is somebody that's been given succinylcholine. So somebody who's basically going under some kind of surgical procedure or a volatile anesthetic. Um, so they're given the gas to try to go under for surgery and they have a really severe reaction. This is like the equivalent of kind of having an anaphylactic reaction to a drug, but it's specific for these anesthetics that we use for surgery. I think in this question, I would be primarily trying to, if they hadn't given me the giveaway that the patient's on an antipsychotic, which would make me lead toward neuroleptic malignant syndrome caused by the D2 blocking uh, properties of antipsychotics. I would be between antipsychotics or neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome. And I think just the fact that this patient isn't, isn't described as having like hyperactive bowel sounds. Um, they don't mention that he has, and he has more of the muscle rigidity. I think that that would be the, I think the muscle rigidity would be the big reason that I would pick that. I think if I was going to pick serotonin syndrome, I'd be looking for someone with diarrhea or something gastrointestinal right. in the answer. Yeah. So to me, when you see this, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking at malignant hyperthermia mm -hmm. versus neuroleptic malignant syndrome mm -hmm. on a step one question for sure, uh, your presentation is key here because mm -hmm. you're not going to get neuroleptic malignant syndrome in a situation where they're just, they were just induced for surgery, right? I would hope. I don't think so. That's not going to be a typical presentation. Whereas right. with malignant hyperthermia, it's going to be in the setting of anesthetic use. Right. So I, I, I like, you know, I do what you would say for serotonin syndrome. I'm kind of clumping that with using multiple serotonin drugs. Malignant hyperthermia, like you said, I kind of clump that with uh, succinylcholine and then neuroleptic malignant syndrome well that's with the neuroleptic mm -hmm. drugs right yeah i think and that's it's an easy way to kind of distinguish all of them. i think that's very good um you can also have tremor in the first two so 
I think that doesn't fully differentiate them. And I kind of mentioned that, but I do think that the um, therapies though should be mentioned just like the interventions that we have for serotonin syndrome versus neuroleptic malignant versus malignant hyperthermia. Remember dantrolene is like the only thing that we really use this dantrolene for the only, I think the only thing that you'd probably see it on step one for is for treatment of malignant hyperthermia. So a patient has this bad reaction to going under for surgery, give them dantrolene. A patient has neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Well, that's from D2 blocking activity of antipsychotics. So what do we do to reverse that? Give them something like diphenhydramine, an antihistamine. And then cooling if their temperature is very high. We actually do that for any of them. And then serotonin syndrome really is just kind of managing the symptoms. So sedating them with benzos, sometimes paralysis, intubating them to protect the airway and provide them ventilation. Sometimes we use ciproheptidine or chlorpromazine for the like a serotonin blocking kind of agent. But really that one's more just kind of symptomatic management. But remember NMS, we use diphenhydramine and malignant hyperthermia, we use dantrolene. That's it. That's all I have to say about that one. And I, I thought that maybe you can give um, bromocryptine for uh, neuroleptic. Yeah, you can, you can use bromocryptine as well. That is true. That's also a dopamine mm-hmm. agonist. And I think dantrolene will treat the, some of the symptom or some of the, the symptomatic, like the muscle rigidity um, mm-hmm. and heat generation. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who stuck around to the end, thank you. I want to tell you about a kind of a fun thing we're doing. So this is going to be a fake USMLE question campaign, and we're tying it to a contest. So from now until July 15th, head over to Twitter, go to my page, at Boards Insider, look for the pinned tweet. What we're doing are fake USMLE questions. So here's an example. If Deadpool were in a USMLE question vignette, his most likely diagnosis would be A dissociative identity disorder, B, bipolar disease, C, antisocial personality disorder, or D, other. So here are the contest rules. You want to tag the character on Twitter, for instance, Deadpool is at Deadpool movie in the question vignette, and just set it up like if the character were in a USMLE question vignette, his most likely diagnosis would be, and then make a Twitter poll, pick four answer choices, and tag inside the boards as well as Gomer Blog. That's at Boards Insider and at Gomer Blog. And then finally, use the hashtag FakeUSMLE. The most creative fake USMLE question will get a one-year subscription to our All Audio Q Bank for free. We'll have fun while doing it. Maybe learn something. I don't know. It was just something that I thought would be a lot of fun. And you can also do it on other social media. I guess Reddit, Facebook, and Instagram, where on each platform we are at Inside the Boards. Or you can just send us an email to info at insidetheboards.com if you would like to contribute to the fake USMLE campaign. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Anesthetist off the 2015 album The Mind Sweep. We'll see you back next week for some more high-yield learning.